Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 348. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. Find them online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. He's online at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. All About Jazz carries this show on their website, allaboutjazz.com, and they've got a widget you can add to your own website. Just go to allaboutjazz.com and in the search box type Jazz Session Widget, and then when you add it to your website, let me know, because I will feature you in my newsletter. To get that newsletter, go to thejazzsession.com, and at the top of the page, you'll see the link for mailing list. Click on that, type in your name and email address, and each week you'll get an email from me telling you who's on the show that week and also giving you some links to other things of note in the jazz and occasionally poetry worlds. This show is member-supported. It's free to listen to, and it always will be, but it's not free to make or host online or any of that other stuff, and that means I need your help to keep it going Last summer, I finished a successful membership campaign to get to 100 sustaining members, but the show really needs more than that to be financially independent, and in order for that to happen, I need you to join for as little as $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks. My guests today are the three members of the We Trio, and in fact, two of them, I think, with this interview, have become the most recorded guests on the Jazz Session, if I'm not mistaken. I think the only people to appear three times, and that's uh, Dan Loomis and Jared Schoenig, two-thirds of the trio. The third member is James Westfall. Uh, Dan and Jared and James have all been on before, uh, when the We Trio released their first record, and then... Dan's quartet, which featured Jared, uh, was also on. So I believe that now the first three-peats have been completed. The We Trio has a new record called Ashes to Ashes, a David Bowie introspective. They're going to be playing in New York City at Le Poisson Rouge on February 28th as part of a show called Three Views of a Trio. It's a CD release party for the We Trio, and it also features trios led by Danny Fox and Joel Fromm. We'll hear music from Ashes to Ashes, a David Bowie introspective, and then my conversation with the members of the We Trio. My guests are the members of the We Trio, James Westfall, Dan Loomis, and Jared Schoenig, and uh, we're here to talk about uh, 
let's see. We're stopping the laundry. We're off to a good start already. Uh, the We Trio has been on before, and they're on now to talk about their uh, new record, Ashes to Ashes, uh, David Bowie introspective. And I think Dan's going to start talking. First of all, welcome to all three of you. It's great to have you back. Good to see you, Jason. Thanks for having us. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, wow it's, I like it that it, we're a minute and two seconds in and I've already completely lost control so that's, that's <laughs> yeah. good I, I feel good about Pretty this pretty much you have no usable tape at this <laughs> yes, point that's right? Exactly right. That's right I already have to edit the first minute and 11 seconds <laughs> and we're only at a minute and 12 start again <laughs> so I we guess Dan has drawn the short straw and is going to talk about why uh, a David Billy record we did two records previous to this we did Capital Diner Volume 1 and Capital Diner Volume 2 uh, and they were primarily our original compositions. We threw in some composers that we liked, like we did some Sufjan Stevens, uh, we did a Monk song, we did a song by Kurt Cobain, uh, but mostly our own originals. So we wanted to do a third record, and we thought it'd be cool to just dig into the work of one composer, like the way a string quartet would, you know, like the Emerson Quartet de Shostakovich, you know, like, and just because we really liked the way we played together. I mean, that's always been the focus of this band, is how we improvise together and how we craft music together. So we're like, well, what if we just got into one person. So we threw around a lot of different composers. Um, James, you know, was initially kind of silent about what he wanted to do, but Jared really wanted to do Jimi Hendrix. Um, then James and I started talking about maybe we can do Foray. Uh, we talked about Shostakovich. We talked about Stevie Wonder. Um, so we were just going through a lot of different people. And uh, James, uh, we were on a little conference call one day because James lives in New Orleans and Jared and I live here in Brooklyn. And uh, he's like, well, what about David Bowie? And uh, Jared and I... <laughs> That's, a, that's the voice we use for James, although you'll see later he doesn't actually sound like that. But just so you know who's talking, um, if I use this voice, it's James. Um, so James says, what about David Bowie? And if I use this voice, it's Jared. <laughs> and this is how I tell stories to my son and to the people who listen to this podcast. Um, and uh, so Jared says, that's a terrible idea. I don't like David Bowie at all. <laughs> And uh, I said, I kind of agree. I don't really like David Bowie. And James like, it's kind of fun. We did some of his music in New Orleans. And we had a really good time. And uh, Jared's like, fine, we'll listen to him. And so uh, I was like, okay, I agree. And uh, that's the voice I use for me. And um, so I agreed. And basically, Jared and I got the discography. And we just listened to it with an open mind. And what hit us both is that he just covered a huge range of the 20th century. You know, just like... If you talk about genres that happened in the last 30, 40 years that are important to art music, that are important to pop music, he's been in every single one. You know, he did like like the folk rock thing. He did the glam, he invented the glam rock thing, um, did kind of like a classic rock sound, uh, did really crazy art rock, you know, soundscapes, electronica. You know, it's like he's been into so many different things that are important in pop culture and then important in kind of like art pop culture. Um, and he's always able to make like really outside sounds somehow in and make millions of people love them. So we thought, what a better guy to address in a jazz context, because that's what we're always trying to do. We're trying to you know, bring new sounds into the music, and um, at, with this particular band, play things that are sophisticated and might be considered out, or like, um, you know, uh, not avant-garde, but, you know, modern to some people, uh, but engage people in that, you know, like draw people into that kind of sound. So we said David Bowie is like really uh, a perfect catalyst for that. So... Uh, we picked out six songs we really liked. Actually, we picked out a lot more. We each brought in about four songs, and we had a rehearsal. We played through them, and it was feeling really good with the band. You know, It just felt pretty great right away. So we uh, picked six songs that we crafted uh, to work for us uh, with a lot of open space for improvising. We did one gig, and then we went to the studio, and it went great. 
That's Dan Loomis who plays the bass. Uh, Jared Jonah who plays drums. I wanted to ask you as as the person who was initially reluctant to do David Bowie, can you talk about why you were reluctant and then what you heard listening to the discography that that started to change your mind or at least open you up to the possibility? Well, to me, the only <laughs> the only way I thought about David Bowie was the movie Labyrinth from the '80s um, that I really enjoyed watching, but I thought he was so creepy and so weird. So I, then I just you know I associated that with his music, and I never really I never really checked it out. I've always been an avid fan of you know uh rock and classic rock and um even alternative rock in the 90s but never really found david bowie too interesting um so james you know suggested some stuff to listen to and i started to actually really like some of his compositions that's you know not so much his uh his singing but i was very into his production of his albums and yeah just the the broad differences between the different albums which i thought was great um, just like, you know, Miles did with his, his gradual path to going from, you know, bebop to, you know, the, this, the late 60s sound to Bitches Brew and stuff like that. You know, David Bowie was doing it in his own way. Yeah, we, we all picked our own tunes that we were interested in and in transcribing and not all of them worked. We didn't want to sound like a cover band. So we in this rehearsal definitely try to do some interesting things with arranging them and you know slowing down tempos speeding up doing different grooves you know all this dynamic kind of stuff and it was able to pique my interest and to keep me you know happy and excited otherwise because we don't want to we don't want jared to get his nickname again which was dark old jared shonig (laughs) (laughs) you know i was pretty pretty happy and pretty uh enthused about the the David Bowie aspect. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me as a good a good fit for you because you feel to me like someone who's pretty comfortable on both the the jazz side, I'm making air quotes, and the rock side. Yeah, yeah. of the spectrum. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and then I, that's one of the definite reasons I love playing with the We Trio because it's able to go both ways a lot of different times. And you know, with this music, it just ended up seeming like we were just playing our own repertoire, and we kind of you know made it sound like we were just playing We Trio tunes. Especially people, you know, will hear these tunes that they probably never heard because they're, you know, on, they're not Bowie's hits and they might just think, Oh, that's a wheat trio song. That sounds awesome. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. You know, I love, I love doing the, the backbeat, the pop thing, but I love swinging too. And we get to do a little bit of both on the album. So it's, yeah, it turned out great.
James Westfall, who uh, plays vibraphone, can you talk a little more about the process of arranging these so that they retain, I guess, whatever you wanted to retain from Bowie while becoming We Trio performances? Yeah, yeah when, we, when we we were each assigned, we said, okay, everyone take four songs, and when we meet for rehearsal, we'll just go through them. And so we basically um, wrote it out like we would any, any other lead sheet you'd find in the real book. So it's just melody, you know, bridge, chorus, or whatnot, with the chord symbol above. So we wrote it out basically like a little jazz <clears throat> uh, lead sheet. And we'd, we'd play it through. We'd all listen to it. We said, hey, we, I did this, I did this, I did this. And Dan would say, I did this, and I did this. And, and Jared said, I did this, and I did this. <laughs> and um, so, we, so we zeroed in from a whole discography to just kind of zeroing in on about 12 songs. And uh, and listened to those for a while and, and had those really in our head so that, you know, really under our fingers. So then when we got together and read down the lead sheets. Uh, we said, okay, well, let's let's add this chord here. You know, this is this is kind of a cool chord, and let's do this here, and let's let's do this as an introduction, and let's do this instead of the bridge. For instance, when we take uh, the song Queen Bitch, it's um, you know it's from the record Hunky Dory, and it when he's when he's singing the the choruses, it, it's it's hard to really place the melody on what he's doing. And so we decided to uh, free that section up on the choruses, and um, and when we say free, I mean free melodically and free harmonically and free rhythmically. And so we really took the option of playing free, uh, you know, really harped on that, you know. And then we said, okay, well, how are we going to get back to that punk rock feel? And it's like, okay, well, let's let's speed it up, you know, and let's just. You know, let's just take take the song down to its bare bones and then rework it and almost recompose it. people who've covered you know pop tunes uh which you know is a, is a broad word just jazz i guess but who talk about finding interesting harmonic material for the improvised sections and that that's sometimes a challenge or you know and i wonder if you guys encountered the same thing or how you dealt with it yeah well, well that was the interesting thing because the the cd only came out to be six songs even though we had about double the material and some of the songs just didn't work i mean we brought in jared brought in changes 
we just we couldn't make it work. I mean, we had space oddity. We had a hard time making that work. And so some a lot of the songs, most of them just didn't make it. We just with the time, you know, we had the studio book beforehand, and so we had about two days to rehearse. So with the time that we had, we just we weren't very comfortable taking it to the studio because we weren't able to really make it our own. Can you guys talk about, uh, and anybody can take this now, talk about what makes the We Trio sound like it sounds? I mean, obviously, the obvious answer is the three of you guys, but I mean, is there something about the We Trio that you think has some, some kind of hallmark points to it? Yeah, this is Dan, the bass player from the We Trio. I think one is kind of the obvious answer, which is the instrumentation. For some reason, this instrumentation hasn't been done very much in jazz. And uh, we're kind of puzzled because we think it works so well. And for us, it worked really well at the bat, having vibraphone, bass, and drums. People kind of people ask us often how we got the name, the We Trio. And uh, we joke there's a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is we like the word, and then the Nintendo Wii had just come out. Um, and uh, we thought we could ride it to glory. But the, lo- the longer answer is that, you know, Jared and I played in a lot of piano trios over the years, and we like that, but... Uh, piano trio the piano always kind of dominates it because they can have so much information they have 10 fingers 10 notes that they can put down at any time uh, but with the vibraphone it's this kind of like agile version of that or kind of like a stripped down version of that where it's uh, james can play chords if he wants to but he's often just playing you know one note at a time playing lines and so it has this more democratic feel you know that like everyone in the band has a more equal voice um so that's one of the uh, parts that make the we trio sound the way it does um, I would also say just like the way we approach um, the jazz, the jazz we play energetically. Like there's just a lot of uh, when you see the band live, it's like we're playing a lot of rock grooves, um, but just like the the amount of energy you you get feeling coming from the band. Actually, Jared might be able to comment on that more. Yeah, I think the way I see it is that this group has many different subsets in it. And um, I think the original subset is Dan and I, this is Jared and Dan and I have been playing together for about 11 years since our early college days. And we developed like a thing early on and have brought that to a number of groups so that when we initially found James across the street, wheeling his vibraphone um, and James came over to play, he immediately kind of, fit into this into this pie he was like a missing slice of the pie and um you know he he yeah it was just a very natural thing and then i think within us playing together then there's another subset of james and i and we're kind of like we've been called the twin towers of power you know we both we're, we're both percussive instruments we can play loud and fast um and and with a lot of power I think people like to see that, and that brings a lot to both a recorded and you know, live performances. And then there's the, you know, Dan has often been called the anchor of the group and the harmonic master. And um, so James and Dan also have a wonderful kind of harmonic freedom. Um, and it's and it's always, what, what keeps it going is that where we constantly are listening and our ears are always like on 11 and that's kind of what makes the group what it is because everything is fair game and we take it to a different place, gig to gig. Um, so it, I think it, what makes the group sound the way it does is just, a, you know, um, it's a little bit of our personalities. It's a little bit about the instrumentation, but it's basically our history and the way it's developed over the years. 
Jerry, can you say more about uh, you and Dan? You said have been together now for eleven years, playing together, and you referred to you know having a thing. And mm-hmm. I think like everybody in their mind when you hear you say, "Well, we have a thing," where they can imagine. I can imagine this hookup that a bassist and drummer have. But can you talk a little more? Just maybe explore that for us a little bit. Sure. Um, I think well, when Dan and I were students at at Eastman, um, we did a lot of of checking out of music together, and we would check out certain rhythm sections i.e. Um, Jimmy Garrison, Elvin Jones, uh, Philly Joe, and uh, Paul Chambers, you know, and then even more modern guys, Greg Hutchinson, Ruben Rogers, stuff like that. And we would, you know, we would try and figure out what they were doing and and try to emulate that. And I think we both came to approach swing uh, in, in a similar way and had this uh, similar idea of, of the way things should swing and the way that music is always a forward propelling thing especially jazz and swing and then we kind of adapted that to our more groove oriented thing and just the interaction we had between each other was able to transfer into a more like straight straight ace kind of rocking thing you know it, it comes from a it's funny because it actually does come from a background of swing mm-hmm. but was able to um successfully merge into this kind of uh, rock, more rockier sound. It's not uncommon what you're describing, right? Uh, you know this idea that a bassist and drummer kind of come as a team. I right. mean, there's a lot of, for sure. You know, think of the Washingtons and all the yeah. all these guys who uh, we think of as great pairings. But actually, people of kind of our generation, I think of that a little less. Maybe that it, it seems like there's a lot more of the kind of like everybody's a Ronin out there, you know, just playing with whoever. And yeah. I like the fact that you guys, yeah, for consider sure, yourselves a unit. Yeah, definitely. Way. And I think I, I, it was really, really apparent in school where we would get hired as a as a unit, you know, people would always want to get us on the same gig. And then, you know, when we moved to New York, it was just such a wider pool of people. So we would be doing gigs with different people, obviously. But, you know, when we'd always come back and, and do something together with, with different groups. And then finally with James, it was just like this 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 musical simpatico that was, you know, much greater than, than other things that we could imagine. 
James, could you uh, first of all mention the upcoming live shows, and then I'm interested in in where this music goes live, where you're where you allow it to go. The upcoming live show that we have that we're focused on right now is that uh, part of my French La Poison Rouge <laughs> <laughs> on uh, <laughs> on uh, on February 28th. And we're doing a triple bill with Danny Fox Trio and Joe Fromm Trio and the Wee Trio. So it's a trio triple bill. And uh, and as far as live shows, one thing about us live is that we hate playing something the same way twice. And usually when that happens, when a song gets played and starts sounding similar and gets kind of stagnant, it um, quickly leaves the repertoire. So, for instance, there's there's even a couple of Bowie songs that we don't we don't do anymore just because we feel like it's kind of reached the stagnant uh spot you know and there's some songs that we've been doing since since uh the first album that we still do because we could still make it sound different and um like i remember we played when we played in austin uh my grandmother was there and she was wondering uh what album one of them was on there and she was like i you know she really likes likes the band a lot and she she knows she knows all the songs but she didn't recognize one of the songs we did on our first record just because we do it different we change the tempos with it and we morph the tempos and we do some different chords and um so we're always we're always uh looking for new ways to and ways to reinvent the wheel with our repertoire prevents a song from being malleable in that way like what, what about those bowie songs for example doesn't allow them to really be reinvented each time um with the bowie it's like we we want to stay true to the composition but we 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 still want it to grow and some of the songs are just so set in its ways that it's hard to to give to breathe new life into it it can be done but sometimes most of our rehearsals are done on the bandstand and so sometimes to reconstruct a song, it, we're permitted with probably too many challenges to do it on the spot. And so if we would have to breathe new life in certain songs that's made its way out of the repertoire, we'd have to probably sit down with it and, and reconstruct construct it that way. You just said something kind of as a as a throwaway line that I wanted to ask you about. This uh, Dan already mentioned that you're based in New Orleans and mm-hmm. these guys are based here in New York, and yet the band has a very it always has a very organic sound. But I imagine it's somewhat difficult to rehearse, <laughs> given that you're right. uh, in two different places, thousands of miles away. How how does the band maintain usually, a real hookup? Yeah, way? usually rehearsals come on the sound checks, and we'll say, hey, let's look at this. This this kind of got sloppy the other night. Let's run through this. Let's do this slow. Um, or I have an idea for this song. Or hey, I have a song that's that I've been carrying around with me. Let's look at it. Um, so usually that's kind of how rehearsals come. 
you know, we have some ideas for the fourth record. And so we'll probably have formal rehearsals. Um, That's the all meatloaf tribute record. <laughs> oh my no! I keep suggesting yeah. that every time on the show that anyone mentions a record and doesn't say what it's about, I always say it's a meatloaf <laughs> record, right? And no one's ever actually done it, so I'm constantly disappointed on this program. <laughs> yes, I think so. I think that's what I'm learning. But anyways, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, I kind of did, obviously. But so you have ideas for the fourth record? You were saying? Yeah, like for this record, we actually had formal rehearsals. We booked we booked the studio and we had a gig booked the day before. So, so when I flew up to New York, I flew up um, a few days early, and we spent two six-hour day rehearsals. Um, and that's probably what we'll do when we get a new book of music. You know, if it's if it's just a song, we'll we'll do it on a sound check, or have like a little one-hour sound check rehearsal. But if it's um, if it's gonna be like a suite or a new book of music, then we'll we'll plan a day for it before the the tour. Dan, can you talk about how this band is actually run? I know a lot of musicians listen to this show, and it, the band seems – it feels like a collective to hear you guys talk about it, but I don't know if in the day-to-day that's actually how you know gigs are booked, music is decided upon, so on and so forth. Well, James is a libertarian in the, in the group. I'm not sure if you know about that. So we have a lot of political discussions, and we actually found out that James is a special subset of libertarian called uh, anarcho-capitalist. An- anarcho-capitalist. How do you say it? What's the proper term? Anarcho-capitalist. anarcho-capitalist. So um, the band is sort of run the same way. It's kind of like a little anarchy um, where everyone just kind of like jumps in and uh, does different tasks. Um, so I'm joking a little bit with that. Like, But I mean, we all kind of handle different tasks and like all jump in and uh, help out with different things at all the times. Um, and it's been really like an interesting growing process, like figuring out how to work that as a band. Because like, like I said, the band is like very democratic um in on the bandstand you know like everyone has like an equal voice and so like running the band um has been very much the same way like people have different strengths um and can jump in and do different tasks and so it's worked really well um i think at this point like the band is kind of growing up a little bit and we're gonna have to like formally uh define roles we'll make jared chief treasurer and you know like make a james chief new orleans liaison you know like (laughs) like actually have like Define roles for the band and define things that people do, but it's kind of been interesting up into this point and fun up into this point for like everyone to kind of be involved in everything. You know, it's like we're kind of at the startup yeah. phase of the band. Yeah, because and I can see why that you would need an evolution because that sounds fun when you say it and it sounds great to be democratic. But then yeah. at some point, somebody actually has to make sure like the gig gets booked and this, yeah. you know, the back end is there and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And it right, you have to find a balance. It sounds like yeah, and we do that. But it, as we get more uh, defined, it'll be like some person's official job to make sure the back. The, the back line is there as opposed right. to like you didn't check on the back line I thought you did I right. thought you did <laughs> <laughs> which is how so, it goes sometimes yeah. um, on uh, Ashes to Ashes one thing that uh, jumped out at me as soon as it came in the mail is the packaging uh, and in fact I was just talking to uh, another musician last night at a show who had also seen the packaging and th- his first comment about it was it's great because it seems like they're really doing it for real like it's an actual project that they spent some time on i wonder if you could talk about it i mean for there'll be a, an image of the uh cover at the jazz session.com for folks to check out uh, and i'll also link to a great video that shows the the shoot for this but can you talk a little bit about any of you about the the cover design and the the photography the uh we did the photo shoot in new orleans and um we have some great friends that are uh he's a photographer his name is richard thompson We've always kind of collaborated. Uh, whenever I needed some photos, I'd 
always use him and and uh also there's a great makeup artist that's uh liz uh roach she's about to get married so she's gonna soon be liz austin but she's a she's a great makeup artist she went to art school and uh we kind of presented the idea and she's like oh i could totally do makeup and this and that and and we kind of threw through some options you know we didn't want to like copy you know the the Aladdin saying uh image uh to the T, you know, that, which is why we have like some green and blue and red. We didn't, we didn't want to like, we wanted to pay it, be it to be a tribute, but not, not so much like a, um, a cover. We should probably say that the, the cover image is, uh, six heads, two of, of each of you with various kinds of face paint and mm-hmm. your heads painted in that kind of thing. Yeah. We kind of want to embody the glam spirit without necessarily, uh, being a, a David Bowie cover. You know, Dan. Uh, Dan in the video says uh, the the kind of promotional video you guys made for this that um, a lot of jazz musicians are pretty. Well, I think he actually uses the phrase "don't care" uh, or are pretty relaxed about how they look on stage. Um, and there's actually, I mean, there's actually debate in the jazz community. You know, everything between how we're all dressed now and jeans and shirts to, you know, the suits and ties. And there are people who seem to fall on all kinds of spectrums. And I mean, one of the things that you guys mentioned before was that about Bowie that he not only did he embody a, a sound of each era but he also embodied or in many cases created a look of each era that he was in and I wonder how you guys I mean you obviously spent a lot of time in the packaging of this static product but when it actually comes time to to do this on sage is there any part of the appearance piece that that trickles over there or is that something you you think about that matters <laughs> well this is Dan uh, so I'll respond to the question about what I said um, yeah, I mean, we we think about that when we go on stage live, like how you look, and it's it's always an interesting debate because you have like the Wynton Marsalis look of like you know wear your suit and tie look really killing, and there's guys uh, or like look killing in a formal way, you know, like and there's guys in New York who do that, you know, show up for like every gig and you know a really nice tie and like a really put together suit, and then there's guys who like you know there's like the John Zorns who show up in camo, you know, like right. and everything in between. Um, so like you said, like. Bowie created like a persona, like around every era he did. So we kind of wanted to, we felt like we couldn't put out a Bowie record without, without creating a real package behind it too, like a real look behind it. That would be kind of, I don't know, it would, you'd miss a lot of what he was into. Um, so we're actually struggling with how to do that on the road, you know, because when you're like traveling in a Jared's Pontiac Aztec, which he generously donated for WeTrio use on this 8,000 mile tour that we just did, you know, it's like, you don't have a lot of room for stage makeup, um, but I think you're going to see some of the coming new, uh, upcoming New York show. It's like we're going to try and figure out a way to have the look of the album and have the look of just kind of the project. You know, the project's got sort of a look at this point, and figure out how to get that on stage. That's kind of the next challenge for us as a band. And, and even you know, uh, uh, blowing that up beyond the We Trio, uh, one of the things I love about going to rock shows and um, I would say primarily rock shows, to a lesser degree maybe hip hop shows. Uh, is that there is a real visual component to the show also. I mean, it's it's obviously intended to be a show. And even the music can still be amazing, but there's a piece of it that feels like acknowledging that there are people out there and that they could listen to the record, but they came to see something else. And I, I find, and I've made no secret of this on the show, I find I'm really often bored when I go out to see jazz shows because I don't feel like there's any acknowledgement that I'm there. Um, and 
so maybe Jared, I mean, if you could talk about that a little bit about yeah. that idea of the performative aspect. Well, of sure. I mean, I think one thing that's great about this band is that we are always really excited and energetic and acknowledge that we're being, you know, we're, we're so grateful to be musicians and being able to do this for a living that I know personally for myself, I know that, uh, performing is just, you know, as much as it is aural as it is visual. So it's not necessarily a gimmick, but the only way I know how, how to perform is with energy and, and involving the audience somehow. And I think that, you know, Dan is, is generally like that also. And, and James is a little like that. Um, but I think over the years he's become even more, um, uh, gotten more personality on stage. Um, you know, and we, and we, and we, and we love him for it. But, but I know that I, yeah, when I go to a show and I, it, it looks like the musicians are bored, man, I'm bored also. It can be as killing as, as anything you hear on the radio or with your favorite CDs, but you're there to see a show. Yeah. Why not just put in the record? If it's not, if it's not looking like the guys are having fun, then why are you there? Yeah, and I think, and I don't mean to suggest that every show has to have you know a, a gimmicky element or you know costumes and a light show, but but there, but I agree with you. There is something if you go there and it looks like people aren't engaged, right. it's very hard for you in the audience totally to be engaged because that they communicate the emotion right to you. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I think we constantly get uh, complimented on that that we look like we're having fun and that it makes the audience have more fun and and that's the way that's the way music should be and maybe I've taken a cue from like my rock past and and noticed that and just that's just the way I perform but I think we all do that to a certain certain degree and it's and it's paid off and it's it's a more natural organic thing for the audience to to watch a band having fun than watch a band that looks like they're just there doing the motions can you talk about the tour that you guys were just on yeah wow well we just, so we just did a four-week four tour. Um, we did a lot of driving. We started so it started off with Dan and I driving down to Stephenville, Texas. Um, it was about a how many miles? I don't know, it was twenty-six hours. It was about a twenty-six, twenty-seven hour drive uh, over two days, and we met James down there. Um, he drove from New Orleans and had a much less of a drive, but it's cool. <laughs> we ain't mad at him. Um, nine hours, jeez. Um, so yeah, we started there. We did a an amazing uh, concert at a at a school there. We played in Houston, Texas, at a great club. We played in Austin, Texas, at a great club. We and and what else did we do? We did another. UNT. I mean, we played at UNT, which is you know sort of the educational mecca of of jazz. University of North Texas. Yeah, University yeah. of North Texas in Denton. Um, so we had great audiences, great following in Texas. And then I'll pass the mic over to James, and he'll talk about the next part of the tour. Sounds great. From Texas, we drove to New Orleans, Louisiana, where we performed at Snug Harbor, and we also did a uh, impromptu clinic slash mini concert at the University of New Orleans. And uh, from there, we drove up north <coughs> to St. Louis, Missouri, where we played at the Jazz Bistro, and that was a great audience. And then from there, I'll give it to Dan Loomis. <laughs> From there, we went to uh, possibly the most magical club still existing in the United States. Uh, Jared's holding my hand as we say this because it's such a special moment for us. Um, uh, uh, the Green Mill uh, in Chicago, which is just an unbelievable place with this great uh, legendary owner, this guy Dave Jamillo, and it's just you know awesome place, packed every night, got all this history. So we had a really fun time there. We went to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, because everyone should go there at least once, and we did. 
And then we went to Cleveland because I think you have to go there on any tour of any kind, so you can say thank you, Cleveland. And uh, we did that. And then we went. I hope back. you actually did that. Yeah, at, at every opportunity. <laughs> okay, I think we good. said thank you, Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We said it the next night, too, when we were in Rochester. <laughs> Thank you, Cleveland. And, <laughs> hey, how are you? And uh, so we went to Rochester, New York, which, uh, as you know, for some reason, if you've been to Rochester for a while, you can't stop going back there. And so uh, inevitably, we were caught up in Rochester's gravity. And we actually had some really great shows there. We played a nice concert at Roberts Wesleyan University um, and had a lot of really uh, great friends in the press who did a lot of stuff up there. So that was nice to be kind of back in the hometown of Rochester, our adopted hometown of Rochester. And then uh, then did the Northeast Passage, as we call it, Philadelphia, Boston, New York. And now we're finally back home. Which is amazing. I mean, that's like a, that's the kind of tour that, you know, like a rock band would make or a, right. a pop band. I mean, that's a yeah. lot of miles for a jazz trio playing, like, you know, adventurous right. music. Yeah. How, how did that even happen? How did it even well, become we, reality? Well, we planned this tour out as a uh, putting all our cards on the table tour. You know, we just... We knew we wanted to make a big splash with this album. Um, we were excited about the music. Uh, we were excited about where the band was going even before we made the album. Uh, we loved playing together live. And so we just wanted to like get the music out to as many people as we possibly could. And so we just called up everyone that we knew, really, um, and put this you know a four-week tour together, which is, as you say, it's a long time to be on the road. A lot of people to reach, uh, given that it's a jazz, even at its most popular, is a pretty small market. Uh, but we had a great time. It's like it's amazing to connect across the United States a lot of people who love jazz and a lot of people who are excited about it. And, uh, you know, meet a lot of people in far-flung places who had the album already, who were psyched to hear the band. Um, so it was really, really intense and really difficult, but very, very gratifying to connect with so many people. And I think it made a lot of strides for the band. always talking on this show about the fact that it's so hard to play multiple nights to really give the band a chance to kind of settle in the music a chance to settle in uh you know as opposed to back in the day when you might be booked for you know six weeks or you know three months or whatever at a club and you played five nights a week and by the end you recorded your live record and it was amazing so i wonder what and anybody can answer this what your experience was of of the music from you know night one of the tour to to now i mean it it definitely grows after four weeks you know and 
like I said earlier, it's like some songs eventually got weeded out because they had the stagnation, and some of the songs grew and, and, and sounded very, very tight. Like Jared has a really hard song that we record on the second record called Whiteout, and it has these. Uh, even though it's in four, it sounds like it's this kind of mixed meter song. And, you know, it was one of these situations by the end of the tour where we were able to get it pretty tight and the notes uh, became more accurate. And and um, and also, you know, we wanted to have the music memorized. You know, we didn't want to be on the bandstand with, with music. And so, you know, some chords that I felt kind of shaky about, you know, my ears were like, oh, I don't know if I'll make this chord. And, and then by the end of the tour, it's like, you know, my... My uh, my ear chops were up too, and you know playing chops, and you know, and then you know, like I said, like for Queen Bitch, even that grew, and sounds, you know, we even sound different from the record um, than how we play it today, because of the whole idea of it just getting more free and and going different levels and. So long, it's like we uh, we create these musical inside jokes, where they just these little melodies develop of their own song, and and they have all these different musical cues, and uh, usually the audience could kind of pick up on that, and they'll always give an applause um, when we do that. And that was James, and this is Jared. This is Jared. Yeah, um, along the lines of like the way Kneebody plays, you know, they have, they have a lot of musical cues that that's signaled different things this band has kind of picked on the picked up on that not necessarily like copying anybody at all but like we just kind of do it and never talk about it so there's a lot of stuff we do in this band that just comes from night after night performance wise that we'll do the next night and it'll just kind of happen and we'll go wow you know there, there's there's so many things that we never really talk about that just happen and then after the gig we'll go like oh that was awesome when you did that <laughs> and then we'll all be really into it and and then so it kind of becomes part of our vocabulary um and and just commenting on uh, on the band's uh progression over the over the tour one thing i noticed is that um well i'll say two things you know sometimes like with these guys, they have a little harder job as far as memorizing the music because I don't have to play any notes, but I know them notes anyway. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, if something, if, if a certain thing is not happening, like someone's not necessarily nailing a section all the time, like I, I'm the kind of person that is going to say, hey, you're not nailing that section. And and not as a, as a diss or anything, but more as just like, man, we need to get to that next level musically. And and I and I really respect these guys for being able to take that as not necessarily criticism, but as you know, constructive, a constructive thing. And they and they did it, and 
and only the music grew from there. So I, I respect them a lot for that. And then the other thing I wanted to say is that by the end of the tour, the band was sounding so good that even when we had these, we had a lot of audiences at, only at the end that were very sparse. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's a Northeast thing, but um, there are some videos of us playing at, at a club and you watch these videos and the band sounds amazing. And there was five people in the audience. So I was watching these videos yesterday going, wow, man, this, this makes me feel really good just to see that the band is not phased by by audience per se because you know we are up on the bandstand and there's five people in the audience we're still going to play like there's a hundred and that's a great thing about about this band mm-hmm. yeah. i wanted to ask uh i remember you know when i was growing up i listened to a lot of prog rock and one of the joys of going to see that music live was that it was identical to the record like that was part of the point it was you knew every drum fill you knew every keyboard line i was going to say guitar line but you didn't generally have those um and so I wonder, and in jazz, that's almost like antithetical to what happens nowadays. But I, even if I think back to like you know Count Basie's like April in Paris, that the solos on that were the same every time. Even though those guys are some of the best improvisers in the business, they played those solos because everybody loved right. those solos. But but all that stuff was the same. So I wonder if the We Trio, especially now that you're playing. Um, music in this particular case by David Bowie, although there's more on the concerts. I wonder if you guys try to find any balance between recreating some of what's on the record for the people who've heard the records versus the more normal jazz aesthetic of anything goes or, you know, it grows where it grows. That's a really interesting question. And the answer in my head, and these guys might have comments on it too, is that it's a great challenge for us because we are trying to make it very different every night. I think we all put the onus upon ourselves to try something new every night. Uh, at the same time, this band is, doesn't have the aesthetic of like, wait five minutes for something to happen. And, something magical might happen, which happens in a lot of jazz and improvised music. And we all have respect for that music, but we're not really trying to go for that. We're trying to um, present something that's engaging all the time. Uh, so it's a little more succinct than like a lot of jazz groups might be. And so I think the, the balance that we strike for ourselves is like always trying to try something new, but always make it really engaging you know it's like so it's it's a lot it's kind of a high pressure situation because you're like well i want to try something like we always play intros in the band like um james will take an intro to one song or jared will take an intro to one song and we always try and do something different every night like always people are always putting it on themselves to do a different introduction even if the introduction from last night worked great you know like try something new um and so that can be a lot of pressure because you want it to be as great as the night before uh but have it have a big impact and so that's that's the balance we strike. I think it's just um, like Jared Jared said, like try to make every show like the best show, like you're playing for a hundred people, uh, but at the same time, you know, improvise as genuinely as you can. Will you mention the uh, date and location of the New York show again? Yeah, we're playing at Le Poisson Rouge. Uh, pardon my French, as James says, <laughs> um, but Le Poisson Rouge, uh, 10 p.m. on February 28th. My guests are James Westfall, Dan Loomis, and Jared Schoenig. They're the members of the We Trio, and their new album is called Ashes to Ashes, a David Bowie introspective. It's fantastic. You should get it, and you should go see them live. And thank you guys for coming back on the show. It was great to see you. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. Thank you.
That's music from the We Trio, Jared Schoenig, Dan Loomis, and James Westfall from their new CD, Ashes to Ashes, a David Bowie introspective. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Please join them and become a member of the show for as little as 10 bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. And don't forget, the We Trio will be at Le Poisson Rouge in New York City on Tuesday, February 28th in a triple bill with Danny Fox's trio and Joel Fromm's trio. That's a great show to see. Starts at 10 p.m. Tuesday, February 28th at Le Poisson Rouge in New York. Thanks so much for listening. Now get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.